Hello, and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2014 Jackson Hole Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Bill Whalen, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is 2014, Midterms of Endearment, and it was recorded on August 5th, 2014. You call it? I keep on wanting to call Colin Colin Farrell which I think not only is not only his last name, but the wrong nation, too, I think. So I'm now trying to get into Colin Firth. Maybe we'll stick with that for a while. Eventually get to Stuart. Thank you for that beyond generous introduction, Colin. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for coming out today and joining us. Um, I live and work at Hoover, as do some of the other fellows who've talked to you, and we sort of selfishly like to think of Stanford as God's country, but my first time here in Wyoming, and I think that is an elastic definition. This is a wonderful place to be. Uh, Colin mentioned that I have a blog, and uh, if you have the time, look it up. I'm having fun writing it. I started it about a week and a half ago. Uh, a couple Sundays ago, we hit the 100-day mark in the 2014 election, so I thought, good time to start writing. There's almost something to write about every day if I'm disciplined enough and focused enough. And uh, if you look on it today, the URL, by the way, is adayattheracesblog.com. You'll probably find it if you Google it, or I can give you my card and write it out for you. I have a piece in there today on Wyoming. And what interested me in particular was the Senate race, in particular, a gentleman on the ballot named James Coltrane Gregory. And you're laughing because you know what I wrote about. Nobody knows who Coltrane Gregory is. Uh, there's a James Gregory who was a musician of some sort, so they think maybe it's him. Uh, the local papers have tried like crazy to find him. Uh, they checked out his email address, and the email address sends you to a website which says, stay tuned for something great that's about to happen. They called his phone number. Nobody responded. They looked up his address for his campaign website. All you have to do is file 200 bucks and give an address, and you're in. So they looked up his business address, and it's a house in Jackson, a business in Jackson that I think is uh, home to about a dozen other businesses. It's kind of a corporate flop house, if you will. So they finally figured out when they could find an address, it traces all the way to Washington State. So nobody knows who this guy is why he's on the ballot. And to me, this is a fascinating test about our feelings about Congress in this day and age. The institution has such a low reputation, the theory being how many votes can you get if you truly are an invisible candidate. So I salute you on your innovation this year in 2014. So I'll talk about the election. I'll give you some um, bold predictions at the end of it. Uh, I could give them now, but you wouldn't have the joy of listening to me for 30 minutes. Um, What fun would that be? And uh, keep in mind, when I do give you the numbers, there are 91 days, exactly 13 weeks from now until the election, so there are 91 ways that I can get this wrong. But let's start off by talking about 2014 by thinking about this rather unique period of politics we're in right now. Before Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama came along, there was only one stretch in American history where you had three consecutive presidents who had served eight years. Presidents three, four, and five, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. It's the only time in American history, this is assuming Barack Obama makes it to the finish line in 2017, and yes, if you want to ask a question about impeachment, we could do it in Q&A, but let's assume Obama makes it all the way to the finish line, but we've had three straight eight-year presidencies. But there's an interesting contrast here. Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were born 15 years apart, just as Bush, Clinton, and Obama were born 15 years apart, 1946 to 1961. But Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe were very much the same man. They were Virginians. They were interested in the law and planting. They were plantation owners. They lived about 30 miles apart from each other, the three plantations about 30 miles apart as a crow flies in Virginia. And they were forged by one common experience, which was the American Revolution. 
Contrast that to these three presidents, Clinton, Bush, and Obama, who come from decidedly different parts of the country, had decidedly different political beliefs, but share this much in common. Each one had a very problematic presidency. Clinton came in in 1993 promising to be a different kind of Democrat, and he promptly lost the Congress in two years. And by the time he left office, after eight years, Al Gore was running as a very progressive Democrat. He abandoned the Bill Clinton pursuit. George W. Bush came along in 2000, runs as the anti-Bill Clinton, runs very strong on moral values, and he wins. He runs as a compassionate conservatism. But compassionate conservatism pretty much dies on 9-11. Bush becomes a foreign policy president. By the time John McCain was running in 2008, he was running away from George W. Bush. So along comes Barack Obama in 2008, and the expectations couldn't be higher. I think I wrote down what was the phrase, the oceans will begin to recede, the world will heal, and six years later, not quite the case. And what you're going to see in 2016 is Hillary Clinton or some Democrat to be named later is going to have to find a way to very gently throw the president under the bus and run over it at very slow speed forwards and backwards, but still run away. So what this has done is this has created a very difficult period for Congress, and this is the anomaly to think about. While you have this presidential stability of three straight presidents, each surviving for eight years, Congress has undergone remarkable upheavals in the last 20 years. There was a Republican revolution in 1994, followed by Democratic revolutions in 2006 and 2008, followed by a Republican revolution in 2010, and quite possibly a Republican Senate revolution in 2014. That is a remarkable amount of unrest in the past 20 years. Why would this happen? Well, I think the answer is two things. Number one is the weakness of these presidencies. Remember, Bush loses, Congress right, Bush loses Congress six years in, but Clinton loses his right away. Obama loses half in his first two years. The presidents aren't having very successful presidencies to allow their Congress members of Congress to brand behind the presidency. But the second factor is one of social media. It is very difficult to run in this day and age as a congressman, and you're going to screw up in your campaign. It's just a given. Everybody's going to do something dumb on a given day, but when you're running for office, thanks to social media and everybody holding up a phone like this and taking pictures and recording sound, you're going to get caught. There once was a saying in politics, you know, be careful when you go out because somebody might be taping you, and, you, and politicians usually brush it off because they don't want to look for people in the, in the back of the press holding up microphones. Now, everybody sitting out in this audience could possibly be filming me, so if I say something out toward, it could be on Twitter, it could be on Facebook in, in literally a nanosecond. Members of Congress have learned this the hard way. George Allen, the senator from Virginia, for example, remember he was videographed saying a racial slur about a young man at a Senate event, and that was the end of his campaign. Anthony Weiner, where would the lovely Anthony Weiner be without social media in this day and age? There'll be no visual to go with that, by the way. So, 20, so social media is causing, is making life difficult for these guys. So about 2014, I call this the reset button. And I'm going to take that phrase from Hillary Clinton, and you know what? I think Hillary would be glad to let me have it. Remember the 3 o'clock wake-up call in Chappaqua? I think Hillary wakes up at 3 o'clock in the morning screaming, reset. Why on God's earth did I take that picture of that Russian official shaking hands and holding that reset button? That's going to come back to haunt her. But this is the full circle reset button in this regard. If you go back 20 years to that first Republican revolution, and you looked at how the numbers stacked up after the election, this is what the landscape was. Republicans had... 230 seats in the House. They picked up 52 on election night, so 230 was the new majority. They picked up eight seats in the Senate for a total of 52. Bob Dole, the new majority leader. And they picked up 10 gubernatorial seats across the country, going from 20 to 30. So 230 in the House, 52 in the Senate, 
30 at the, at the gubernatorial level, the state level. Right now, the numbers are 234 in the House, 29 among governors, and it's the Senate that stands out, if not for five very bad candidates the Republicans run in the last two cycles. Republicans would have 50 Senate seats right now. Instead, the number is 53 Democrats, 45 Republicans, two independents who caucus with the Democrats. So it's a 55-45 Senate, but it should be a 50-50 Senate. So what's going to happen this fall with the Senate? We talked about education in the previous event. Well, education weighs over this too. Can Republicans count to six? The Washington Post says yes. The Washington Post has a function called Elections Lab. It crunches data around the country, and it comes out with predictions. It gives the Republicans an 82% chance of picking up six seats in November. The New York Times, hardly in the business of promoting Republicans, gives it a 65% chance. So here's what they're looking at. And what I'd like you to do now, I'd like you to play along with me, and let's have a little game with this. You have a tab, of, a piece of paper in front of you, right? You have a little notepad. I'd like for you to pull out a notepad and a pencil. I'm going to go back to grade school when you drew pictures of the galaxy. What I'd like you to do on the center of your notepad is draw a little dot. And on that dot, I want you to write three postal codes for states. I want you to write down WV for West Virginia. ST, what a nice crowd. You're actually participating. This is great. WB for West Virginia. There won't be a quiz, by the way. Don't worry. So WV, SD, MT. This is West Virginia, which is about the strongest odds of a Republican pickup going. South Dakota, also a Republican pickup. These are two states which are pretty rock-rib Republican, and the senators are, are, vacant, are vacating the seats. So those are pickups. Montana now joins the pretty certain list for this simple reason. Those of you who are following that race are aware of what happened to Senator Walsh the other week. For those of you who don't know, Max Baucus was the incumbent senator. He took a fast boat to China, became the ambassador. Lieutenant Governor John Walsh becomes the interim senator. And it looked like a very good move at the time because it's great to have senator in front of your title. Gives you a lot of cachet. However, a problem quickly ensued. Walsh was running in part upon being the sitting senator and lieutenant governor before that, but also running very heavily on his military experience. He's a veteran in Iraq. Then it's revealed that while he was at the Army War College, he apparently plagiarized a thesis. And for Walsh, it's the worst of both worlds. Number one, apparently he cheated. And number two, he cheated on a thesis that was all of 14 pages long. So not only do you look dishonest, but lazy on top of that. So Montana has as a filing deadline a week from now, a week from Tuesday, they can actually bring a new candidate in. There's incredible heat under Walsh to drop out of the race right now and put somebody else in. That person will be a sacrificial lamb for this simple reason. The National Party, Montana, like other states out here in the West, if you're running, you're incredibly reliant upon out-of-state money. Donors will look at that from other states and they'll say, no, I'm not going to give money to the cause. So he's pretty much sunk. So on this little center of the senatorial universe, you have West Virginia, South Dakota, and Montana. Now I want you to draw a circle around that little dot. This is your first ring. I know it's high tech, but a lot of you are engineers and such, so you, you understand this. Now in this circle, I want you to include the following states. LA for Louisiana, AR for Arkansas, KY for Kentucky, NC for North Carolina, and GA for Georgia. I'm taking you on a tour of the south, going up the Mississippi, going clockwise through the Bluegrass State, the Tar Heel State, down to the Peach State. This is where the races will be won and decided, ultimately. Three of these states, Louisiana, Arkansas, and North Carolina, have very vulnerable Democrats who are in trouble right now. Republicans see those as the next likely pickups for them. The two other states stand out for Democrats. That's Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell is up, and Georgia, 
which is also an open seat. And there the Democrats think they have the best shot at picking up a seat. And why is that important? It's the math of the situation. Where a Democrat picks up a Republican seat, that forces Republicans to pick up two to make a net gain of one. So if the Democrats are going to stave off six, they've got to pick up one of those two. Now I want you to draw another circle around that circle. We'll be out of circles here soon, I promise. In this circle, I want you to write down AK for Alaska, CO for Colorado, IA for Iowa, MI for Michigan. If you think of this as being a wave election, the tide rising and Democratic seats getting taken out, these are the next four that get taken out in the wave. Now I want you to draw one final circle. There are only two states that go on this one, NH for New Hampshire, VA for Virginia. If the rising tide turns out to be a tsunami, these get included in it. And these are difficult states for Republicans, actually. New Hampshire is where Jean Shaheen is running for re-election. She's a very popular former governor. Uh, Scott Brown, the former senator of Massachusetts, has uh, jumped in his truck and driven north and is now running in that state. Carpetbagging is a problematic uh, issue if you're running in New Hampshire. Virginia, uh, that's Mark Warner, the incumbent Democratic senator. His opponent is uh, Ed Gillespie, who you might have seen on TV at some point, the former chairman of the Republican Party and a counselor in the Bush 43 White House. A tough pickup there. So I'll save you the math of counting these up. That's 12 seats in play right now for Republicans. So when you talk about gaining six, what in reality you're doing is actually trying to run the field on half of those. Now, if Republicans get six seats and they have control of the Senate, and let's assume they also get control of the House. The Washington Post gives the Democrats a 1% chance, by the way, of picking up the House. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is just not going not to get it this time around. Uh, what about 2015 and 2016? And this is a note of concern. As giddy as Republicans might be 91 days out about getting control of things, I think there's a very cautionary tale to be told, and it's simply this. If we go back to 1994, the House Republicans in retrospect did something very smart. About six weeks before the election, they gathered on the steps of the Capitol, and they held up a document, and they announced that they had come up with the contract with America. Now, this was not a terribly innovative thing. In fact, they went back and they picked off a lot of ideas that Ronald Reagan gave in his 1985 State of the Union. But they were smart in terms of having to relate to ethics, the way the, the, the Congress was run, and some basic core ideas of what they wanted to do. It prioritized the election for them. It nationalized the election. And this is what I worry about with the Senate races right now. Mitch McConnell's thinking, the general thinking among Republican Senate candidates, is that they will win their races based on two things. Number one, Barack Obama's unpopularity. He's at about 41% right now in the real clear politics average of approval. Bad place to be. And then secondly, the overwhelming unpopularity in these conservative states with Obamacare. Now, that might be true. Maybe that's enough to get the job done. But I think they need to think about it a step further for the simple reason. The contract, the contract with America not only helped get Republicans elected in 1994, but it did something hugely important in 1995. It kept Newt Gingrich under control for 100 days. He was now on the hook to deliver the things he had promised in the election. My concern with the Senate going forward on the Republicans is simply one of focus and discipline. Every smart Senate candidate who goes out there and runs has to have one question in the back of their mind how to answer. Okay, sir, you're going to run for office. What's the first bill you're going to introduce? I'm shocked how many candidates, by the way, don't have an answer for this. Uh, I don't know. But it's a question for the institution as well. If the Republicans have the majority for the first time since 2006, what are the first 10 bills that they plan to send Barack Obama's way? So the contract with America would help that in this regard. So you have to be careful about the good fortunes you get. And there's one other concern for Republicans while we're going on this idea of, of a blessing being a curse. 
And that if we think of 2014 as being the reset button, is the Republican Party resetting the button on its own national image in this regard? I am a child of the 1960s. I was born exactly 19 days after John Kennedy announced he was running for president. And I love watching the TV show Mad Men because for me it's a very freaky flashback to products that, that are in the Draper household that were in my household as well. Those of you who grew up from about 1954 on until 1992 understood that the two parties in America had simple brands. The Republicans were the presidential party in America. They didn't control Congress, but they tended to win the presidency. And it made sense in the Cold War. The Republicans were seen as the more adult, more senior party of the two. You trusted them to make difficult decisions. The Democrats, on the other hand, were the Congressional Party. And along comes Bill Clinton in 1992, and along comes the Republican Revolution in 1994, and things flip. When Obama leaves office, Democrats will have held control of the White House for 16 of the last 24 years. Assuming Republicans hold on to the House or get back the Senate, they'll have had control of one body or both bodies of Congress for 18 of the last 24 years. This creates a problem for the GOP in that the Republicans become a congressional party. In other words, think of this this way right now. Democrats have shown a talent to win national elections under Barack Obama. Uh, it's a little illusional in this regard. Barack Obama won 300, captured 332 electoral votes in 2012. He only won 208 congressional districts. So, in a sense, for the Democrats, when it comes to national elections, the sum is larger than the parts. Republicans have the opposite problem. Mitt Romney won a majority of House seats, but he won only 206 electoral votes. And going into the 26th campaign, that's where the baseline begins for Republicans, around 206. And for Democrats, it's much higher. It's about 250. Much easier for them to win an election. In fact, if you look at 2012, Obama won 11 of the 14 states with 14 or more electoral votes. He won 14 of the 21 states with 10 or more electoral votes. What that means is by winning two-thirds of those 21 states, he captured 267 electoral votes. It means all he he needed to get the White House was Washington, D.C., Rhode Island, a simple, small Democratic state. It's like a tap-in for birdie. Simple as that. So this is a problem for Republicans going forward, and this is what 2014 emphasizes for Republicans in this regard. There are 21 Democratic states that are up and 15 Republican states. Republicans could not have possibly been dealt a better hand in this regard. Of those 15 states that they have to defend, one is a blue state. Anybody know what state that is? It's Maine. Susan Collins in Maine. It's the only state the Republicans are defending that Barack Obama carried. The Democrats, on the other hand, they're defending 11 red states. And that's the problem here right now. So what 2014 underscores is that when you have an election that's more about the parts of the sum than the sum of the parts, Republicans do wonderfully, and it's a new divide we see in politics. We've talked historically about red states and blue states, and then we look around the country and we look at states and we divide them along their cultural similarities. We look at a state that has Starbucks and breakfast places that are called cafes versus states that have coffee shops and wouldn't dare go near a Starbucks, and one's a red state and one's a blue state. A blue state, you get the New York Times. A red state, you don't, and on go the comparisons. One way to look at national politics, though, is those states that have cities of 300,000 or more. Republicans thrive in states across America where there are not large urban centers. In states without cities of 300,000 or more, Republicans do well in those states. Democrats do well in those that have large states. And if you look at the lineup of states that I just mentioned, the ones in those first couple circles on, those, on the page that you drew on, there are all of six cities that are 300,000 or more, and five of them are in Colorado and North Carolina. So the Democrats are defending them what is just fundamentally hostile turf for them. So... 
I told you I'd give you some numbers on what I think will happen. We'll get there in a minute, but I think before that, I think it's worth talking about who are winners and losers in this particular cycle. Some of you have taken bets on this. I'm going to give you three people who I think come across as losers in this cycle, first of all, and then we'll give you the winners. Um, the loser on the Democratic side is going to be, lo and behold, President Obama in this regard. Losing the Senate is hitting bottom for the presidency, and he'll now have to, if he loses the Senate, he now has to make this calculation about his presidency. He can basically shut things down, figuring that there's nothing to be done with Congress. I can do executive orders. There will be a showdown over the Supreme Court at some point where there will probably be two nominees to be had. But otherwise, I'm just going to live on Obamacare and my biographical interests, and that will be my legacy and, you know, the pox on both those houses. Or he can make this calculation, which is that he'll look at his presidential library and he'll realize that with the exception of Obamacare and a few other things he signed, he doesn't have a lot to put on those legacy walls of presidents signing bills and shaking hands and looking like a chief executive. He could actually sit down with Mitch McConnell and John Boehner and, in theory, get a few things done. But hitting bottom for Obama would be losing the White House, except sometimes when you go down to the bottom, sometimes there are a few you know, hits you take on the way. He may be taking one on Saturday. Saturday is primary day in Hawaii. Uh, why the good people of Hawaii would choose to vote on a Saturday is beyond me. Uh, you look at any state across America, there's Saturday voting, and what do you find? Massive fallout. Uh, i got to believe there are better things to do in Hawaii on what I'm assuming is a sunny day in Hawaii than go vote. But they're having a gubernatorial primary and a senatorial primary, and these are really problematic for Obama in this regard. First of all, there's the Senate race. The interim senator named Brian Schatz is running against uh, Colleen uh, Hanabusa, who is a uh, congresswoman, and... This has become the sort of complicated racial politics that Barack Obama was supposed to get us past. Hanabusa uh, is running on the fact that, A, the late Daniel Inouye, whose seat was vacated, wrote on his deathbed that he wanted her to get the job. Instead, Neil Abercrombie, who we'll get to in a minute, the incumbent governor, appointed Lieutenant Governor Schatz to the job. So uh, Hanabusa is going around and appealing directly to Asian Americans, saying that Asian Americans, we need to rise up and take this seat. Schatz is also engaging in racial politics. His first ad that he puts out is ostensibly about senior care and social security. It features his father-in-law, who is Chinese-American, and his son, who is half Chinese, half American, doing dumplings together. So he's also pushing the racial buttons before. So post-racial politics are still alive and well in 2014 in Barack Obama's home state. The other problem for the president, this is the bigger problem, Obama has directly intervened in the gubernatorial primary. Uh, his family is known, Neil Abercrombie, the... Uh, who, you should look up on the day. He's a fascinating-looking guy. He's basically a hippie. He still wears lays, and he has a beard and just looks like a child of the 60s. Abercrombie is in deep trouble in his race. He's down by at least 12 points. Obama actually went to the extent of cutting a radio ad for him, and the radio ad he refers to him as Ohana, which is Hawaiian for family. Uh, it hasn't moved Abercrombie's numbers at all in the polls. He still seems to be sunk. He's one of those candidates who just can't crack about 50% in his approval. Voters just don't want to associate him with things like raising the minimum wage in Hawaii or signing off on same-sex marriage. He just looks like he's targeted for getting kicked out. And how terribly embarrassing for the president in his native state to have the governor who he weighed in for to lose. So not good for him. So Barack Obama goes down as, as a potential loser in this. Second person I'd point to is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Not on the ballot, but in this regard. The White House, Democrats in Washington, have been quietly employing Ruth Bader Ginsburg to step down and to do so this year. Why? They may not have the Senate next year. It doesn't mean that a Republican Senate would necessarily reject the president's choice for the Supreme Court, but a Republican Judiciary Committee 
and a Republican chamber could make life a lot more difficult than the president would like. It might force him to tailor his choice more than he would care. Plus, the White House is making a very calculated decision that they would love to have a Supreme Court hearing, which ultimately tie into their favorite trope, which is the war on women. The more they push Ruth Bader Ginsburg to, to step down, the more she digs in and refuses to step down. And the same situation faces, by the way, Stephen Breyer, who would be the next in line to go besides uh, Ginsburg. So Ginsburg could have made life very comfortable for the president and, and the Senate Democrats by uh, stepping down in this term. She decided not to. So if there was a complicated replacement hearing for her uh, under Republican Senate, then she would qualify as a loser in this. And then the third one's going to be Hillary Rodham Clinton for this simple regard. Those southern states that I mentioned, you're going to see a Clinton campaigning in those states, and it's going to be Bill, not Hill. She will be asked to come campaign in those states, but she's going to make a decision. What does it mean for my 2016 fortunes? Do I show up with a bunch of people who may be going down? And it's a difficult situation for her because in North Carolina and Louisiana, you have women who are defending their seats. So Hillary would be a natural to go there. She also will be asked to go to Texas to campaign for Wendy Davis, who is a Democratic gubernatorial nominee in that state, who's running a very klutzy campaign, though, and is probably going to lose as well. So Hillary's going to have to make a decision on where to go and where to campaign. Now, you'll see her show up in, North Carol- in New York to campaign for Andrew Cuomo. Uh, she may or may not come out to California to campaign for Jerry Brown. We have some Californians here, I trust, by the way. Uh, I haven't talked about California. I think one of the joys of coming to Wyoming is I don't have to talk about California for a change. <laughs> I looked at the 2012 results. Romney got 69% here. I just had to rub my eyes and look at it. I'm just not used to seeing that. I almost cried. Uh, Hillary will have to look around the country and see where she goes. And I mentioned California because... Jerry Brown would seem a natural, but the Clintons and Jerry Brown have a very complicated existence. If you know anything about that, go on YouTube sometime and type in Bill Clinton, Jerry Brown, and you'll see the debates from 1992 where Clinton's just ready to come across the stage and slug him because Brown is going on and on about what a sleazy lawyer he thinks Hillary Clinton is. So I got a feeling she may not show up for that one. And it raises this uncomfortable question about her as to how her national candidacy will go vis-a-vis her husband. Because remember, her husband was about branding the party differently as a, as a different kind of Democrat and playing in the South, and we're going to get out of the North. And Hillary's going to have to look at this and decide, you know, how does this play in my natural fortunes as well? So those are your three potential losers. Now the winners on the, on the other side, the winners, I'll give you three of them. Number one, the anonymous Republican governor slash senator slash congressman slash city councilman to name later. Somebody is going to win in November that surprises Republicans. And he or she is going to get lofted on people's shoulders and be talked about as somebody to run in 2016. And I'll give you a couple of names to consider. One is Scott Walker in Wisconsin, uh, who is actually in pretty big trouble right now in his race. He's down about five or six points from the polls I look at. And uh, what worked for him in the recall does not seem to be working right now. I don't know if he's uh, worn out his welcome after four years or not. But I know if the Democrats could win one gubernatorial seat besides Pennsylvania, that's a seat they would desperately love to get. So... If Walker emerges as a winner in that race, uh, he is going to very quickly pivot and look at running for president. Uh, So look at him. Secondly, look at John Kasich in Ohio. Uh, The Republicans cannot do enough in Ohio, it seems. They have taken the convention to Cleveland, everybody's first choice of a summer destination. Uh, They are putting all the technology they can to gain back Ohio because the feeling was they were just skunked on technology, and that's why they dropped that state. Kasich as the newly reelected governor of that battleground state would seem to be very natural to look at the presidents here, at least be on somebody's conversation about a running mate. So that's potential winner number one, the anonymous draft pick to be named later, the player to be added. Number two is Chris Christie in this regard. 
Spoiler alert, Christie may lose governor races this year. He's the chairman of the Republican Governor Association, and he gets to play Santa Claus. Not because he would look very natural in that red suit. He is Santa Claus in this sense. He raises a lot of money as the chairman of the Republican Governors Association, and he goes around the country, and he gives it out. And when Chris Christie comes to town every day for Republican candidates like Christmas, they're going to get a paycheck. If you look at the map of 2014 governor's races and put it on top of a 2016 presidential race, what do you see? There's a governor's race in Iowa. There's a governor's race in New Hampshire. There's a governor's race in Nevada. There's a governor's race in South Carolina. There's a governor's race in Florida. If you're a Chris Christie and you're thinking about running in 2016, uh, if your friend Bob Grady were here today, we could bring him up and have him talk about Chris Christie. Uh, this is a great way to feel out what's going on right now. He gets to go into each of these early primary states and make connections. More importantly, he gets to see how he is received, because Christie, as we know, is a controversial guy. He's a little polarizing outside of New Jersey. He gets to see what the reception is. And this is very, very, very valuable. Ask Bill Clinton. Before Bill Clinton ran for president, he was the chair of the Democratic Leadership Council, that group of Democrats with Chuck Robb and Sam Nunn and a very young Al Gore who talked about running a more moderate person for president. So what Clinton did very cleverly was he took full advantage of that job to go around the country into early primary states and introduce himself. And it paid off handsomely for him in 1992. So Christie, even though he may, spoil alert, ultimately lose a couple of governor's races this fall, it may go from 29 a little down, he is a winner in the sense that he gets to make connections that other 2016 hopefuls don't. On that note, by the way, keep an eye on Jody Ernst in Iowa. Jody Ernst is every Republican 2016 hopeful's best friend. They can't get to Iowa fast enough and campaign for her. Not because they love being in Iowa in the summer. They just want to get in that state. So Christie potentially a winner. And then the third winner coming out of this, Mitt Romney. In this regard, there is in 2014 something which I call the Romney rule, in that whatever Mitt Romney seems to touch turns politically into gold. I don't think he has lost a race yet in which he has endorsed a Republican candidate. Now, granted, sometimes he's, you know, he's picking low fruit, he's picking some fruit that's already on the ground, but he has a perfect batting record. But something else funny that's going on with Romney. Usually when a presidential candidate loses, he's ostracized by his party. He's just not welcome back yet another time. They walk around literally carrying an L on their forehead. How many people talked about John McCain running in 2012 after what happened in 28? Well, something funny has happened to Mitt Romney along the way. He had a very difficult 2012, but 2013 and 2014 have been exceedingly kind to him. The Washington Post the other day actually wrote an article saying Romney was actually right. It must have killed them to write this, but they pointed out that on Russia and several other issues, my God, what the guy said in 2012 turned out to actually be true. So Romney right now doesn't carry the taint that other presidential Rom uh, nominees uh, usually have at this point. Now, he would be a third-time candidate for the Republican nomination, but there is somebody who actually ran and got it on the third time. You know who that is? Ronald Reagan. Very good. Somebody knows their presidential history. Yes, Reagan ran in 1980 and got the nomination. Reagan ran in 1976 and narrowly lost to Gerald Ford. But Reagan, while he was governor of California in 1968, got into it very late, was out of it literally by the time he got into it. But technically, he was a third-time candidate, as Romney would be as well. And Romney carries a lot of influence. We can get into this in Q&A as well with the 2016 questions that have come, in that Romney still has a big organization around him. He still has a handful of loyalist aides who are fiercely, fiercely loyal to him and won't go anywhere else, but he sits on top of a lot of money. He still has his very formidable fundraising machine, and they're waiting to see what he says. So you have this really interesting contradiction going on right now. The chairman of the Republican National Committee, Rance Priebus, 
wants to shrink the process as best as he can. He wants to have a convention in mid-July. He wants to avoid what happened to Romney, which was not getting the nomination until the end of May. He wants to get a nominee in place early so they can begin the national election much earlier. If Romney does not announce what he is doing in the first months of 2015, to a great extent, he freezes the field because you'll be going around the country as a candidate looking for money, invariably going to somebody who can help bundle it for you. Remember, like the old Bush pioneer, the Romney equivalent, and they'll say, gee, you know, I really like you as a candidate and very interested, but i got to wait to see what the governor decides. So Romney, very much like Hillary on the Democratic side, keeps the other, keeps that field frozen. If Romney runs late, he could, in theory, Romney, I'm guessing he'll do. Uh, Lonnie, if Lonnie Chen were here, he could tell you this as well, since he knows the governor very well, obviously. I think what Romney's going to do is he's going to keep his cards with chess as best as he can. He's going to wait as long as he can and just see how the field shakes out and see if somebody emerges after the 2014 races, somebody kind of comes to the top. We have a funny way of doing things. Republican circles, we like to look for somebody who is seen as just, it's their turn. Historically, it's somebody in their 60s or 70s. The field, you look at it shaking out right now, it's gentlemen in their 40s and 50s, so it's much younger. But usually there's somebody who has a financial advantage, a, a narrative advantage, an organizational advantage, and they either just sort of steamroll the opposition or they sort of, you know, just outlast them, one or the other. That's how Romney got the nomination. But this field right now, it's wide. It's really a cast of peers. A lot of people who have not run before, some who have, but nobody who really dwarfs the others right now. So what Romney's probably going to do is hold back and just kind of see if anybody sort of emerges to the top of the field. And if he doesn't find a likely, you know, breakout candidate, he could surprise us all and just jump in. So, okay, final note. You asked for predictions. You've lasted through long enough for this, so I'm going to give you predictions. Get to Q&A in a minute. Starting with the governors. Uh, 29 Republicans right now, I think they're going to lose two seats. I think they're going to lose Wisconsin, and I think they're going to lose Pennsylvania. And I think they'll bounce out to be 27-23 when the dust is settled. In the House, which now is 230 Republicans, or 234, excuse me, I think they pick up six. 240 is a nice round number. So let's get the Republicans plus six in the House. So the new balance there would be 240 to 195. The Senate, drum roll please. I think Republicans get eight seats. 53-47. I think this election breaks big one way or the other. Either the feelings against Obama, the pent-up frustration with Washington in general and just wanting more change, either it fizzles and you get only those three little states on the dot on your page and the rest go the Democrats' way. Maybe the Democrats pick up one or two so they balance off, so you get only a net of three, maybe four at the most, or it breaks large. And my sense is if you look at the 2010 election, it broke large, but it didn't start breaking large until about October. You start looking at voter registration numbers and intensity numbers. They're already breaking right now, 90 days out. So to me, that spells trouble for Democrats in the Senate election. So I'd give the Republicans a net of eight of that in 53-47. So please write that down on a piece of paper. Then the day after the election, please throw it away. <laughs> so with that, I'm going to take a break here, take a swig of water. Thank you for listening. Uh, one final thing, by the way, since I'm the last uh, fellow to speak here. We don't say it enough as fellows, but we are keenly aware of all that you do for the Hoover Institution. We also are keenly aware of the fact that without your support, your interest, and your generosity, we could not have days like this. So on behalf of my fellows, I thank those of you who have been a part of the Hoover Institution. Those of you who are looking at it, I hope you enjoy today's conference and will want to take part in more. I'm going to be around here for the afternoon and the dinner. Anybody wants to keep talking about this, I'll keep going and going and going. But I'd be glad to take a break now and take any questions you may have. Thank you. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channel in iTunes U. 
I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.